Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna have a founder that has done it so many times that I just get dizzy with with thinking about how many times he's done it. Um, you know, building, scaling, exiting. I mean, he's been on both sides of the table. I mean, really incredible uh, the, the the story of, of 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 this entrepreneur. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Jeffrey Glass. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me on. So born in Brooklyn, New York. So how was life growing up in Brooklyn? You know, it was it was quite interesting. I uh, I grew up in Brooklyn and um, had a pretty good childhood. My dad was uh, my dad was a commissioned salesman that kind of taught me the kind of value of being good at selling. And he worked across a lot of different jobs over his career and was really proud of the fact that you know whatever he earned or you know he knew that he deserved it because it was from the the fruits of his labor, but you know, he kind of worked across a lot of different industries. I mean, he sold windows and insurance and stocks and aluminum siding and really had a lot of different uh, jobs over the years. Ultimately was an office furniture salesman and that worked out reasonably well for him. And I learned a lot from him and my mom uh, early in her career was an educator. So she taught uh, elementary school until I was born. And then she, she stayed home to keep me out of trouble. And for the most part, did a pretty good job of that, and uh, yeah, life was pretty good. Other than I shared a shared a bedroom with my little sister Randy, and that was kind of annoying, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we're still pretty close. So it was, it was a bonding experience. And I, ironically, the first time I ever had my own room was uh, when was when I left to go to college because before my sister was born, I I shared a, a bedroom with my uh, my mom's mom who was sick for several years. So yeah, I was. I finally got some freedom when I went to college and had had my own room. And obviously, you know, even at senior high school, I mean, that's really the time where you got the taste of of entrepreneurship, the taste of of getting out there and being in action. And and perhaps you know, like you got you know some of this from your father, no? Because uh, he also you know, like he seems like he was a a dropout and you know, like a go getter too. So so here you were literally selling office furniture door to door. So I guess. What did that teach you about, you know, getting out there and, and, and selling? Yeah, so there's kind of a funny story behind that. So it was the summer before I went to college. And I'd, I'd love to tell you a little bit about, about that experience, too. But it was the summer before I went to college. I was um, 
you know, I was a financial aid kid. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and I really needed, I really wanted to make some money to put, put some dollars away for, for college and have a little bit to, for spending money. And, um, and so the only job that I could really get was I went to the owner of my dad's office furniture company and I, and I asked him for a job and he said, look, we, we don't have anything. The only thing we have is we're looking for another sales guy. He said, you're an 18 year old kid. We sell office furniture to corporations here in Manhattan. Like it's, you know, there's no draw, there's no salary, there's no draw, there's no nothing. Uh, so I really don't think this is a good idea for you, Jeff. And I said, perfect, I'll take it. And so uh, I remember you know, the office was a couple of blocks from the Empire State Building. And I spent the first couple of weeks kind of learning office furniture. My dad taught me some stuff and the other guys in the office taught me some stuff, took some brochures and you could do this back then. I literally walked over to the Empire State Building and spent the next, whatever it was, week and a half or so, knocking on every single door from top to bottom of the Empire State Building, trying to sell file cabinets and credenzas and whatever else I could uh, figure out that people needed. So I learned a lot there. I mean, I, I, learned, how, I learned how to take rejection. Uh, I definitely <laughs> learned how you got to just, you got to keep taking swings at the bat if you want to be able to get a hit. I I learned a lot about you know making sure you were being courteous to everyone inside a company, uh, particularly those who were greeting you at the door. It, it was it was a really fantastic experience for me. I, I wound up doing it that summer. I made a few bucks that summer, sold a couple of file cabinets, made a little bit of commission, and then I wound up doing it the following summer and wound up actually uh, having a couple of big accounts. And I, I accidentally ran into this Japanese investment bank that was. Uh, furnishing a few floors in an office tower. And so I wound up getting that deal. And it, it was, you know, I learned how to, to negotiate and manage clients and delivery and account management. It, it was very, very formative experience for me at a, at a young age. It sounds productive for sure. And then you go to Amherst College and they're obviously economics and politics. I mean, obviously you had to, had, you had to do something around numbers, you know, after the experience you know, doing the, the door-to-door selling. So uh, how was this for you? How was going to Amherst and doing this? You know, Amherst was amazing. So as I said, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, I went to this uh, I went to this elementary school, and uh, well, all of my schools were really um, incredibly diverse. Uh, in, in fact, my elementary school, I, I remember um, reading about was then and, and still is considered to be one of the most ethnically diverse elementary schools in the country. So it was this really great, multicultural, enriched, but very urban experience. And, uh, and so then I went to Amherst, which also had a, a nice amount of diversity. It wasn't quite as diverse as, as Brooklyn was back then. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it was out in the country. It was in Western Mass, Pioneer Valley, beautiful settings. People didn't lock their doors. I mean, I remember when I went to visit uh, for for visiting day, you know, when you were an admitted student to kind of check out the college and the student who was letting me stay with him, he left me a little note and said, you know, you just come into my room, the door's open. And I was like, the door's open. Like, who? <laughs> so, uh, so it was life-changing for me. It was the fresh air and the, the mountains and people were, you know, it was, people were very inviting and it was, it was, uh, it was really quite different from New York city living. Um, and, uh, and intellectually it was very stimulating. So I was, it just opened my eyes to a lot of different intellectual ideas and people from all around the world and around the country from different backgrounds. 
So uh, life-changing. I, I lost my Brooklyn accent, as you can probably hear here. Um, so it was, it was great. And I, I studied political science and economics, which was a lot of fun. I took a lot of theater classes. Uh, I was a mediocre actor in a couple of shows. But that was the thing about small colleges. You could, you could just, right. you didn't have to be that great to, uh, to participate. I had a radio show. I, I, uh, I participated in student government. I even, I walked onto the football team uh, and played for a year, having never played in high school. So that's the kind of experience you could get back then in a small liberal arts college. And, um, and then, you know, one of the highlights for me is I, I started a, a company while I was there too, which was kind of my major extracurricular activity. And what was this company about? Well, so when I got to Amherst, I, uh, I really had no money. And, um, I, I went to the college bookstore and just could not believe how expensive a college sweatshirt was. And, uh, and, you know, even though I, you know, I received a lot of, of grant money, I was, but my parents were really stretched to contribute to my tuition and I had a lot of loans and I was supposed to be on work study program. And I was so annoyed at the outrageous prices that the bookstore was charging that my roommate and I, we decided we were going to start a competitor. And, uh, and so we borrowed, we didn't, you know, neither one of us had any money, but he was in better shape than I was. And so we borrowed, this was an enormous amount of money at the time. We borrowed $10,000 from my, uh, my roommate's dad and we created a mail order catalog. And we then hand wrote thousands of mailing labels to parents and alumni all around the country and around the world. And we began this, you know, t-shirt, sweatshirt, college memorabilia, uh, business. And, um, yeah, we didn't realize at the time, but we were we were in the direct marketing business, and we learned how to direct market and manage inventory and run the operations and deal with customers and negotiate with manufacturers and screen printers and and uh, you know, no question, you know, I've I've since then gone on to run some pretty cool technology businesses over the years, but I learned more about business running my little college clothing and memorabilia company than I did in any of my you know fancy venture capital backed companies since then. That's amazing. And then after this, uh, you know, you had the idea of maybe doing law school. I mean, you you definitely defer that. But, you know, one thing that is super interesting here is that you were very driven to really shape up your skill sets around business and perhaps around strategy. And that led you to doing some consulting and then also going to business school. So how, how did you really find that type of determination? Yeah, that's nice of you to ask that. Um, I think I was in a lot of ways shaped by the fact that you know my dad was my dad was a really smart guy, but for a bunch of personal reasons and family reasons, had a super tough childhood. And as a result, you know he he had dropped out of high school in tenth grade. And I got to see the struggles that he had in his life and the the and how hard everything was for him. And I, I think that was a motivating factor for me, which was just that I, I needed to make sure I put myself and my family and to be able to help my, you know, my parents just to be in a better place. So I was always very driven by that. Uh, as you mentioned, yeah, I, I thought about law school. I actually had applied to law school, had been accepted to law school, was going to go to law school. I, I wanted to go into public service. I, I really also had this and still do have this longing to to feel like I'm, I'm doing something for the broader good. And, um, 
but I got I got taken away by I, I stepped into a um, I accidentally st- stumbled into a, a recruiting meeting for a strategy consulting firm in Boston and thought that was super cool uh, and 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 felt like I had a lot of entrepreneurial instincts and had built this little company and sold office furniture and really loved business as well as kind of the thought of public service. And so I thought, oh, I'll just go work for this company for a couple of years. I deferred law school. And uh, I'll learn strategy and finance and communications and how to deal with clients and and really kind of give a strategic framework to all of this entrepreneurial uh, feeling that I had inside. And so, um, yeah, so that's what I did. I I took a job, deferred law school, moved to Boston, and then uh, it didn't work out so well, which is I learned my first first lesson of the sometimes cold corporate world. So I was there for about six weeks. And uh, they laid off 250 people, including me. So it was a it was a pretty short lived career in my first job out of college. It was not an auspicious business start to uh, to young Jeffrey Glass. <laughs> Absolutely. So here, I mean, you did um you did then you know after after this experience, this uh, business school experience too, and and really getting out there. You know, like you you became the COO of Travelers, and then after this, I mean, you you definitely saw the um, the acquisition, you know, and how this ended up being, you know, sold to GE Capital. But this led you to your first business, and that was Suba. So, so how did you come across, you know, the idea of Suba? I mean, this was like your big, you know, or I would say, you know, first company, meaningful company, you know, besides the memorabilia business. So, how did you come across this this idea, and how did you bring it to life? So just to be clear, Alejandro, I was not the COO of Travelers. I was the, the COO of a small uh, small company that Travelers had acquired. Uh, Got it. But um, but very entrepreneurial, fast growing, and it was a sales and marketing organization. I I wound up I worked for this woman who was amazingly talented and and learned a ton there. That that definitely set me up further for um, you know for an entrepreneurial career. You know, sometimes the best things that happen to you are just accidental. Uh, I was with a friend from business school. Uh, so yeah, in between Amherst and and where we are here in the story, I, I spent a few years in strategy consulting at a different firm, one that did not lay me off, uh, as well as going to business school. And I was with a friend and I was talking about all of the learnings and things that we were doing from a direct marketing standpoint, things we were doing with data. And my my friend, who was a business school classmate, he was a publisher, a content publisher, and uh, had worked at um, worked in France uh, for IDG in, in their publishing business. And we started brainstorming on uh, the opportunity to really use content as a way of learning more about the interests and behavior of individuals, and then being able to apply a data and analytical approach like we do in direct marketing to create an internet business that would enable us to provide content of relevance to consumers. And in exchange for that content, we would then know more about the consumer's interests and be able to offer them uh, advertising and offers that were contextually relevant to their interests and to the content that they were reading about. And we, we originally started this company as a technology company. The legal name of the company was Transactive Solutions, which is an incredibly exciting name. And uh, we, the first uh, customer, if you will, of Transactive Solutions, which was this direct marketing engine and this distributed content management platform and this uh, email personalization capability, 
all back in the, this is kind of in the dot-com era. This was all cutting edge, cool technology back then. Um, the first customer was Zuba.com of Transactive Solutions. We were both. And we were using it to showcase how good the technology could be. And what happened was that uh, within six months of launching Zuba, which was this content platform, we grew from nothing to over 6 million subscriptions. And this was pre, you know, this is, there's no social media. There's no viral marketing back then. This was, you know, this was old school. And so we, we instantly got just, we just hit this incredible chord of, uh, of consumer interest and ramped up really quickly and, uh, and wound up getting acquired by Burlesman. A crazy I mean, time. This is 1999, 2000. You know, the internet is booming. And then the internet in March of 2000 went bust. And, you know, we were there to, to see all of the chaos uh, around that. For sure. And I mean, in almost no time, I mean, it was less than three years. I mean, here the beauty is that you were able to see the full cycle. So what would you say that really seeing that full cycle for the first time really taught you? A few things. So a lot of people got really hurt in the you know in 2000 because they got too full of themselves and believed their own you know drank their own Kool-Aid with respect to um, evaluations and business metrics. So one of the things that that has has stayed with me for a long time is that sometimes when things are really euphoric and markets are hot and, and valuations are high and M&A is cranking, is that uh, we operators sometimes can be tricked into forgetting that you need to worry about the core metrics of the business and the fundamental business model. And so, you know, uh, unfortunately, there were lots of examples of companies that you know, spent too much money, really didn't focus on, like in our, our business, we focused a tremendous amount on customer acquisition costs and the lifetime value of those customers. And, you know, back in that era, we, we people looked down upon us for that. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons why we were able to weather that storm was because we, you know, we really stayed true to, to running the business like a business and, and tried not to, to buy into all of the hype. Um, but the other thing I'd say is, like our business did well and we sold to Bertelsmann and they were a great partner and, and I enjoyed working with them afterwards. So it was a really overall amazing experience, but I would say there were obviously much bigger companies uh, that got created in that time period. And those were the companies that you, if, if you're able to survive, maybe this is relevant to today's day and age, those companies that are able to sustain themselves and survive the downturn are really in great position when things turn back up. And so, you know, some of the greatest companies that we know today, the biggest, most important technology companies, you know, they all came roaring out post the dot-com crash, you know, back into the mid-2000s. Those companies really became, you set the foundation for what they are today, you know, companies like Amazon and Google and others. So uh, yeah. there was a lot, lot to learn there. And then obviously, you know, like you couldn't, you know, uh, stay, stay doing nothing. So uh, then, you know, M-Cube came knocking. So what was, what was M-Cube? It's funny that you say that I'm not good at, 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 at doing nothing because uh, we, we, sold Bert, we sold the business to Bertelsmann. Uh, we worked for Bertelsmann for a while. Um, as I said, it was really great. We, the technology that we had was super useful inside of Bertelsmann, and we made a lot of great friends and partners inside there. Um, and when I eventually left... Uh, I, um, I had a young daughter who was just a few years old and, um, 
was kind of reflecting on my own, you know, childhood and the fact that, uh, you know, that my, my parents didn't have the luxury. Well, my mom, my mom stayed home with us, but my dad certainly didn't have the luxury of, of ever spending any meaningful quality time with us when we were little because he was busting his butt trying to make a living. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to take a year or two and just really spend time with my daughter and, uh, and just like, you know, take inventory of the fact I'm like, how, you know, what a great blessing to have this opportunity. I lasted maybe three weeks, uh, before I was like, I've got to get back to work. So, um, uh, so I'm a, I'm a, a horrible failure at, at being a stay at home dad. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and I think my daughter is, is quite, my, all of my kids, I have three children. I think all of my kids are quite glad that I, um, I failed at being a stay at home dad and, and went back to work. Uh, so yeah, so I, um, I had a relationship with a venture firm, uh, from when I was raising money for Zuba and, um, they had been working on a mobile idea that unfortunately didn't work. They put some seed capital into it. And there was an idea to create what was was called then an MVNO, which was a mobile virtual network operator. And what that meant was at the time, so this is the, the time here is 2001, 2002. So the idea was mobile is going to be this big thing. And remember, the smartphone didn't happen. You know, Apple didn't launch the iPhone for another six years at that point. So, so this is early days of mobile. And the idea there was, uh, brands are going to want to have their own mobile service. So you're Disney and you're going to offer the Disney phone. And that's going to be a way for Disney to stay relevant with their customers and their fans and to be able to promote Disney content in some day. And just, it was kind of a wacky idea. And so this business, I had nothing to do with this idea, but they, it was kind of an interesting creative idea, but it didn't work. Uh, and so I kind of showed up on the scene and there were a handful of, of uh, engineers who were working on that. And there was a little bit of seed money left from that idea. And they were trying to morph this into a new mobile idea. And I got asked whether or not I would help. And the idea that we were working on was to create a mobile marketing platform. And the vision for the business, and this is what became MCube, the vision for the, 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 vision for the business was, can we create a platform uh, that enables brands and marketers and advertisers to take advantage of mobile as a marketing channel, which I guess today seems really obvious. But in 2002, you know, this was a time when there were you know, people were on feature phones where you had to triple tap on your phone in order to send a text message. Uh, you couldn't send a text message from some carriers to another carrier. So if you were on AT&T and I was on Verizon, we couldn't text each other because there was no interoperability. So these were the really early days of uh, of mobile, and so uh, yeah, we started we started working on on building uh, what we were hoping to be is a uh, is kind of the mobile marketing platform. And then what happened here? Because I know that as an entrepreneur, you know, like uh, this for you was a quite a challenging time at the beginning. I mean, we are talking about like really dark times and and desperate times where you didn't know, you know, like why. Where where was the cheese at the end of the tunnel? No, so I guess uh, you know during during those times where you know like you're really on the other side of the mountain. Like how how did you guys you know like keep yourself together to keep pushing? Alejandro, it's it's such a great question because uh, the first several years of this business were 
really quite miserable. <laughs> um, we well, the first year wasn't miserable because the first year we had the the naive uh, excitement about how we were going to build this mobile marketing platform and. Um, like to give you like the first three years of this business, we did no revenue and we had raised a whole bunch of venture capital money. We had a small team and everything we did, we could not, we could just could not get anything going. It was just too early in mobile. We, you know, customers weren't willing to pay. The technology was not there. And, you know, w- one of the things that I think a lot about as an entrepreneur and, and having spent some time you know, as a venture capitalist, uh, it's just how do you think about whether or not somebody is you know early or too early, and and because the difference the problem with being an entrepreneur is if you have a good idea, well I, I guess if you have an idea you're going to fall into one of two buckets almost definitionally, which is you're either going to be really early or you're going to be late, and if you're late you missed it. If you're late with an idea. There's seven other companies that have raised venture capital money and have built out their technology and have customers and are creating defensibility. And so there's no opportunity anymore. But if you're early and you're too early, you bleed to death and you run out of money before there's ever an opportunity to create the market that you're trying to create. So, so much of being successful in this world of VC-backed technology companies is is the luck of timing. I mean, yeah, on the margin, you could be smart about how you manage your cash and how you make your investments and how you think about where to deploy. But it's so much of it is the serendipity of did you get there early, but not too early? And for the first several years of this business, uh, <laughs> I was quite convinced we had gotten there too early. And, and almost anybody who had started a mobile anything in the years before us went out of business. Like we, we made this through, I don't know, but, but if the window that we made this through was six months, I might be exaggerating. It was really tight. And so very hard. You know, we, we, um, I can remember I had a board member who like every board meeting, you know, we'd go through the board stuff. We talk about the pipeline and we had, once again, would have no sales and, and, uh, and I felt horrible. I felt like I was, I was letting down my investors. I had employees. We didn't have a huge team, but we had, I don't know, 10 or 12 people. And I felt a huge responsibility to try to keep, keep things going for them and, and, you know, my own family and like my own personal kind of, uh, uh, you know, self-confidence. It was really tough. And, um, so what was the turning point there, Jeff? <laughs> so, well, before I tell you the telling point, I'll just just to give you a sense of how bad this was and also how good it turned out to be. I'll give a little spoiler alert. So, so a few years into this, we've got no revenue. And we've burned through, I don't know, a bunch of millions of dollars of venture capital money. We've got nothing to show for ourselves. And uh and um and we literally tried to give away the company. Like we had a competitor who was doing a little bit better than us, but not great. And we said, well, why don't we merge the companies? You guys can have the company. You can be the CEO. You can call the company your company's name. You know, I'll work for you if you want me to. If you don't, I'll leave. Um, and we'll also, our investors will put some money into the combined company. And you two entrepreneurs on the other side could take a few dollars off. It's like we were literally paying them to buy us. And they turned us down. Uh <laughs> So, um, and, you know, and, and, and two years later, right, we sold the business for several hundred million dollars. So, 
sometimes the best deals are the ones you can't get done. Uh, and sometimes your own inability to sell turns out to be a blessing. Uh, but that, that's how desperate we were. Uh, we could not pay to give away this company. Uh, <laughs> that's and, amazing. And I was saying, I had this board member who who kept saying like, hey, you know, we're not selling, but we don't have any salespeople, Jeff. Like, why, why don't we hire more salespeople? And I, I would have this constant conversation with him and say, look, I'm out there trying to sell every day and there's just not a market for what we're doing. And, um, and, and I'd say, look, if we hired more salespeople, the only thing that's going to do is we're just going to have more burn and we're going to go out of business faster. And, uh, and it was, you know, I think there's an important, I think there's an important lesson in there or, or one that all of us who've been in these companies has to grapple with at some point or another, which is when things are not working, I think it's really hard to know whether or not it's not working because of a failure of strategy or a failure of execution. Cause if it's a failure of strategy, you need to change or just shut down because it's not going to work. Right. If it's a failure of execution, and, and I used to ask myself this question all the time, which is like, is this a good idea, but I'm just bad at running it, that I'm just not a good leader for this business? I don't know how to get it done. Because ultimately, look, as a, as a founder in that company and you know, a person who cared not just about you know, the equity in the business, but just cared about it just being successful and accomplishing the goals, I did not want to be the person who was holding it back. And so I used to ask that to my board all the time. I'd say, guys, is it me? Because if it's me, if there's someone out there who can make this business successful, we should find them. Like, I don't need to be the CEO. I would, I'll do anything to help make the company successful. I don't have to be the guy. And so, um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about, is this a failure strategy or a failure of execution? And one of the data points in favor of this was a failure of strategy was the fact that nobody in the space was really doing well. It wasn't like I had a couple of companies that were crank, competitors who were cranking it. So that was, so we were thinking, okay, this is just not, um, this is this is probably more a failure of, of, of strategy. We're just pointed in the wrong direction. The market's too early. And, and what we were selling, right, we were trying to convince marketers that they should spend money on mobile when it was really early and really hard and really kludgy to pull these kinds of marketing campaigns off. And so... You know, the other lesson I kind of learned in here and, and, and thought about at the time, which is if you're inventing a new medium, it's really hard to convince a big brand that has a reputation and has spent hundreds of years building that reputation that they should risk their brand on something new and innovative. And it's also really hard to create a new cost center. Like this is a new way for you to spend money. So we we pivoted the business and we... Um, uh, we decided like, what we're going to do is we're going to leverage our technology around mobile content delivery and the ability to kind of drive transactions on mobile phones. And instead of trying to make it a marketing platform, we made it a content delivery platform and specifically a content delivery platform for content that the consumer would want to pay extra for. And that was an incredibly important light bulb moment. In fact, my, my partner in, in Starting Five, which is the, the entity that we use to create my current business, HomeTap, um, you know, he worked with me at MCube, and he was a huge instrumental person, a guy named Andy Miller. He, um, he was really kind of an instrumental guy in, in helping figure this out. And, and essentially, uh, we, but even with that insight, we lucked out. This is why, again, I think 
so much of entrepreneurship, you know, we get the credit when it goes well and we get slapped around when it doesn't go well, but so much of it is luck. This is a really funny story. He gets a call from a guy who says, I work for a large, um, I work for an entertainer, global entertainer, and we want to do something big on mobile. And we said, okay, who is it? And he said, we can't tell you. He said, okay. And we said, well, what is it you want us to do? And he said, well, we don't know because you guys are the mobile experts, so you tell us. I said, well, we don't know who you are. And he said, well, we need you to give us a proposal on pricing and how it's going to work. And so this Andy Miller came to me with this, with this idea. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, I don't know. The guy seems credible, but he won't tell us what they want to do, who they are, why it matters. And we were really struggling at this point as a company. And so Andy said to me, he said, well, what should we do? I said, well, we should send him a proposal. So we send this guy a proposal. We're negotiating a deal, having no idea who they are, what they want. It could have been a practical joke, right? It could have been a buddy of mine from business school just having a good laugh. And so it turns out that this guy was the manager for Madonna. And we wound up launching this really big mobile music product for Madonna, which got global attention. And on the backs of that, we wound up getting all of these wireless carrier deals done and all of these content companies started calling us up to want to do business and, uh, and the business took off. And it was because of a, a cold call that we got from a guy who refused to identify himself. And so you know, whenever you break down like what really happened behind the scenes inside companies, uh, there's, uh, there's always like a lot of luck that happens uh, inside, you know, inside behind the scenes. Wow. And the rest is history. I mean, the, the company went from zero to 250 million in like literally like three years. I mean, which is remarkable. And then a really fantastic uh, outcome. I mean, it was reported, which is obviously not uh, uh, accurate for 250 million, the acquisition. Uh, but yeah, anyway, was, yeah, yeah. The numbers you never, uh, yeah. I, I try not to focus on the numbers. It was a big number. Um, and, uh, but more importantly than the big number, it was an amazing. Uh, amazing effort by the team and uh, and so many learnings about what it takes to build a team and to survive tough times and to be open to changing your business model and to listen to what customers have to say. So it, it was it was really a life changing experience for me. That's fantastic. And and this actually really pushed you to the other side of the table. I mean, why the hell did you go to the other side of the table, Jeff? Ah, so. Look, I, I had I had uh, run a bunch of companies. I had you know, built this business that Burlesman bought. I then had this crazy two companies in one experience at HomeTap where we thought we were going to die. You know, I, I did, the first few years, we thought we were going to die because we had no business. And then the last three years, we thought we were going to die because we couldn't handle all the volume. So, um, you know, I would say the MCube experience was so amazing for me and 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 so emotional uh and i was so proud of it and also so exhausted but i i didn't feel like i could ever recreate it it was just like the team that i had there i love that team i'm still close with that team i'm so proud of that team it's something you know this is an amazing stat something like over 10% of our couple hundred employees within 5 or 6 years after mcube went on to be ceos of the of their own like it was just it was a perfect moment in time where Everything just was magical those last few years, albeit we were drowning from all the volume. Uh, and so I felt like I wasn't going to be able to recreate that. And I thought, you know, I'm only 
I'm only qualified to do two jobs, which was to either be an entrepreneur or to try to help entrepreneurs. And um, you know, Bain Capital Ventures was an early investor in in uh, in MCube along with another early venture firm, General Catalyst. And uh, and Bain offered me uh, a role in their partnership, and uh, it was just too good to too good to pass up. So then I spent the next whatever it was seven seven plus years, eight years. Uh, on the other side of the table, really uh, investing with entrepreneurs and, and seeing it from that side. That's amazing. And I want to ask you two questions about this experience with Bain and really being on the other side of the table uh, before we, we, we continue, you know, on the operational, you know, role, especially now your, your, your latest baby, no, with HomeTap. But, but here on, on Bain, uh, the first one is uh, you were also part of uh, the board, you know, at an observer level uh, of LinkedIn. I mean, what does you know, a board, you know, like that, like a, such as like a rocket ship like that, like look like what does corporate governance at its best look like? Incredible. It was such an incredible experience for me. Uh, both the board and the operating team there is it was was unlike anything I had ever seen. Uh, and frankly, you know, even today, when I think about myself as a as a CEO, uh, I try to think back to things that I learned. I learned way more than I contributed to the LinkedIn boards for sure. And, uh, you know, I look at at kind of the work that guys like Jeff Wiener and Steve Sordello, their CFO, and Reid Hoffman, like those guys are just so incredible. Um, and the level that they were playing at was just such a different level than what we mere entrepreneurs play at. I remember early after our investment, uh, and we wrote a pretty big check from Bain Capital uh, into um, you know in, into LinkedIn, obviously several years before the IPO. And shortly thereafter, I remember uh, a big company had approached LinkedIn and wanted to acquire them for a meaningful multiple above what we had paid, and a way meaningful multiple above what some of the even earlier investors had paid, and certainly an amount of money that would have made everybody. Uh, who was involved there very wealthy from a, you know, from an operating team standpoint. And they just did not, they gave it about 30 seconds in the board meeting. Wow. It just was not interesting to them. This, the thing that was always most impressive to me about the leadership and the founders, Reed and Jeff Wiener and all those guys was just the conviction that they had that they were going to change the world and that they were going to revolutionize uh, the world of professional um, networking and, and they did it. And, uh, definitely, I mean, that it's, it was, I'm so lucky. I didn't spend that much time in my career as a venture capitalist and to have had the opportunity to be on that board was just, uh, an incredible uh, highlight of my career there. Absolutely. I mean, you were here in Bain for about close to seven years. Uh, and I'm sure that you invested, I mean, you saw a lot of companies, a lot of entrepreneurs. So in terms of pattern recognition, I mean, especially now, I mean, you've gone now and, and started, you know, now HomeTop, which is, you know, you guys are really killing it. But I guess now, like, how do you see pattern recognition, like things that may have legs or not have legs, and then also founders that may have what it takes? Can you, like, uh, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So when we started HomeTap, uh, there were four of us who started HomeTap back in the, working on it at the end of 2016. And... And frankly, what appealed most to me was not first and foremost that it could be a great business. It, it, 
it can and will be a great, important, durable business. But what what really related to me was the fact that we had an opportunity here to create something for homeowners. And you know, one of the the lessons I would say um, that I've thought about you know over the years is I, I I think more and more. I mean, maybe it almost goes back full circle to when I was in college and thinking about going into public service. And I, I pursued this business and entrepreneurial career, but but always wanting to feel like I was doing something beyond myself. Um, what what got me most excited about HomeTap, which is this this vision that we have around making home ownership less stressful and more accessible. And and there's so many tens of millions of American families who are what we describe as house rich and cash poor who have this overwhelming percentage of their net worth tied up, illiquid in their home. And over, over the years, right, it builds up and their home appreciates and they pay down their mortgage. And so they have more and more value in their house in most cases. And yet the only way they can access that capital is by either selling their home, which leaves them without a home, or by further borrowing against it. And borrowing against it puts them backwards into more monthly payments, more debt, more stress in their lives, more you know, lack of flexibility to be able to do other things. So this idea around, can we give a homeowner the same kind of opportunity, an equity opportunity that fancy VCs and entrepreneurs talk about all day long? That's what really got me excited about it. And, uh, you know, and I, I look back, I think about, you know, the, the, my childhood where you know a lot of my friends who also their, their parents who were not overly wealthy but they bought homes and they wound up in these really stressful situations where every month it was about just having enough to pay the mortgage uh, and so this really this business really speaks to me my personal experiences and 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 it's way more about the mission of the business although I I'm also excited about the fact that I think we are going to create a really big important company so then tell us about you know, because here obviously you you have seen a lot about you know teams and and execution. So how did you put the band together for HomeTap? Well, um, this is a, a fairly complicated business in that we need to be good at uh, number one, building product and homeowner experience uh, that our customers love. And so building the homeowner side of our business is a critical, obviously, part of our of what we do. But then we're also, we invest capital, right? So this is back to my life also as an investor. Uh, and, and, you know, we're an asset manager. And so we are, we are entrusted by capital to make good investment decisions on their behalf. And so there's a huge data science and financial aspect to what we do. And so uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm really uh, proud of is that we have built up incredibly deep bench strength on both sides of that business. And, um, you know, it's not hard, not, not easy to do, but, um, but, but we've been able to do it. And, and I don't know if I have anything overly brilliant about, you know, how you scale teams and build those teams, but, you know, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, maybe a couple, a couple of points on that, which is, um, it's a key part of my job, right? It's, it's you know, keeping the company capitalized for success and building a strong team are the two most important things that I have to get right. And, and part of my job is to make sure I build teams that can also attract and retain other great talent. So I spend a lot of time on that all the time, every day. 
And then the other thing I will say that I think often is neglected when people think about companies that have done well, you know, it's easy enough to give the senior leadership all the credit and talk about how smart the executive team is. Where the work really happens and where the magic happens is in the middle of the organization. Like winning is about execution and execution is led by uh, all those folks that are day-to-day making all of these important decisions, ideally on their own, feeling empowered to make things happen and to execute and pushing the ball forward. And so one of the things I try to spend a lot of time on, and I think we've done an excellent job at HomeTap, I would say um, MCube also really had had this going for them, which is like that the center of the organization is folks that maybe they're not quite as experienced, but they're on their way up, they're up and coming, they're super capable, and we just need to culturally find ways to allow them to shine and to flourish and to build their careers and to be able to drive day to day. and. And that's what lets you scale. And I think, you know, unless you're Steve Jobs, which I am definitely not, uh, you know, once in a lifetime kind of entrepreneur, like unless you're Steve Jobs, your business can't scale without that. And, uh, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about how we do that and a lot of time thinking about how do we build a culture that perpetuates that. Got it. And for the people that are listening to really understand uh, the business model of HomeTap, I mean, how, how do you guys make money? Simple business model. We make a little bit of money off of a, a one-time fee that the homeowner pays when we uh, execute the investment with them that they don't come out of pocket for. We just deduct that from the uh, capital that we're deploying to them. And then the majority of our income comes from uh, the fees that we charge from the capital partners who pay us to uh, put their capital to work and allow us to have the capital to uh, give to homeowners to improve their lives. Got it. And and I know that for this, you guys have raised quite a bit. I mean, you guys have raised about 130 million. And I'm wondering here because, you know, you've here had the opportunity of being on both sides of the table. Obviously, you've seen as an investor, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well with other investors' behavior and stuff like that at the table and at a board level. So I'm wondering, like, why did you choose the investors that you ended up choosing for HomeTap? Oh, that is such a great question because I do think that um, entrepreneurs often don't give enough thoughtfulness to who they take on, uh, and they they just they're looking to get the money done or they're looking to just take it at the best valuation. and And I've definitely seen this as an entrepreneur, and I've seen this as a venture capitalist. That that is, if you have the luxury of being able to choose, you should be thoughtful in who your capital partners are. Um, so I think it's a great question uh, for me. If I went around the table and talked about all of our investors, uh, each of them was appealing to us for a different reason uh, and, and was definitely, you know, look, we're, we've, we've been very fortunate, which is, you know, we've got a track record, we've got a great team, we're in a giant space, we've got good momentum. So raising capital hasn't been, uh, at least historically, that difficult for us. Um, but, but finding capital from the right partners is always a challenge because you want to build that right team. And so I, you know, one of my board members is just magical with how he thinks about positioning us as a brand and how he thinks about consumer experience. One of my board members is she's just incredibly connected to the Boston technology scene and entrepreneurial network. And she's been a huge source of talent for driving towards our business. And 
a big percentage of people who work at HomeTap have actually been sourced you know, through our venture capitalists. Uh, I've got another investor who works for a large institutional asset manager on the insurance side, and he's been incredible at connecting us to capital uh, and making introductions to institutional asset-backed kinds of investors. So everyone on our board is there for a reason, and uh, I don't need all of them to do everything. Uh, they they all have have been incredibly useful to the business, and uh, and we're lucky. We're you know we're we're obviously lucky to be able in a position to to attract people of that kind of talent. But I do think you know, I guess if I had a piece of advice for an entrepreneur or a CEO, which is you do want to get a lot out of your board and your investors, but that means managing it. And, uh, and it doesn't happen by accident and, and people, you should expect to get something from your investors other than capital and, but you got to put the work in to do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about not thinking about the money as money, but thinking about the network behind the money, because at the end of the day, that's what you leverage to go further. So love it. So, so then let me ask you this, Jeff, imagine you go to bed tonight and you go to sleep and you wake up five years later. I mean, amazing snooze, right? And you wake up in a world where the vision of HomeTap is fully realized. What does that world look like? Hmm. I would say it would have three components. Uh, the first is we would have fulfilled our mission to make homeownership less stressful and more accessible. So I hope that someday there's tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of lives are made better by having this ability to have financial options similar to what business folks have in the corporate world. And they, they use that capital to pay off debt or to pay for college or to fund renovations for their home or launch new businesses or care for loved ones. And that is the most gratifying part of what we do at HomeTap. I would say that the second thing is that you know, we have an opportunity to create a lasting business where we become a true next generation financial services company that stands for the homeowner and stands for innovation and for being a wonderful place to work. And uh, you know, we focus on our culture every day. And while we, of course, will never be perfect, we aspire towards being a place where the best talent seeks to build their careers and participate in our mission. And I think that's really the key to being a long-term durable and admired company. And then, uh, you know, I suppose the last part, which is that uh, if, you know, if the first two went, went the right way, you know, we by default would create a new asset class for investors. And at the end of the day, give institutional capital and other investors the ability to participate in this equity side of residential real estate, which is something that you can't really do today other than in one single house, your own house. And so... Um, you know, so I'm proud of what we're doing there too. And look, at the end of the day, those returns for investors, that money is often used to, it's in people's 401ks and their retirement accounts and pension funds and school endowments and funds philanthropy. And so our ability to deliver you know, good risk-adjusted returns and uh, non-correlated uh, assets for those investors is, is a really important thing for us too. And I'll be really proud to, to deliver for them as long as we're also delivering for our homeowners. So I'd say those three things, five years from now, maybe we'll be interviewed, interviewing again, and hopefully all three of those things will be true. That's amazing. That's amazing, Jeff. So, so one of the questions that I always ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, it's a remarkable, the, the experience, and incredible, the journey that you've had. If you had the chance now to go back in time, Jeff, and, and have a chat with your younger self, 
you know, even though that younger self sometimes, you know, <laughs> doesn't probably didn't want to even listen, right? Uh, <laughs> but let's say, you know, like that younger Jeff, you know, that was coming out of Amherst and was thinking about a world where maybe he could create the future, he could create a business. If you could go back in time and give that younger Jeff a piece of, of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Hmm. I'm, I'm glad it was we started at Amherst because if we went back to elementary school, that, that younger Jeff was really quite awkward and <laughs> hard to deal with. Right. Uh, I, I guess I would, I would tell younger Jeff that um, I'd say, look, you know, if you're going to pursue a business career, your likelihood of being successful is is certainly increased by trying to be smart and hardworking. But but try to stay even keeled. Don't get too emotional about the wins or the losses, uh, because a great deal of these things that happen to you every day, ups and downs. These outcomes, they swing on getting or not getting a lucky break. And, uh, and so I've been lucky. I've, I've gotten a few of these breaks, and I'm grateful for them. But I also know that there's a lot of other folks, you know, kids I grew up with who were just as smart or smarter and, you know, and hardworking, and, and they haven't gotten those lucky breaks. And so you know, I'd say, look, when, when you're an entrepreneur, that the difference between success and failure, it can be so razor thin. Every one of my businesses that I've been a part of, there was a moment in time where if the wind blew a different direction, we would have been out of business. But it blew the right direction. Instead, we grew and then we had all these good fancy exits. And so you just can't get too high on yourself when it works and you can't beat yourself up too badly if something isn't yet cranking. So that's what I tell them. Having said wow. that, I do tend to beat myself up pretty badly when things aren't working right. So I'm not sure I even listen to my own advice today. I mean, definitely very, very profound, uh, Jeff. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, I'd love to hear from them. They can, uh, they can shoot me a note on LinkedIn if they like. Uh, so I'm easy to find there. Um, and they can, you know, they can just find me uh, at HomeTap. Amazing. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It's been my pleasure, Alejandro. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun sort of going down memory lane here a bit. And uh, thanks for giving me that opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.